0: This morning we're in Ecclesiastes chapter eight. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter eight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness, your proven character, your promises. And even though we don't understand always what you're doing in our lives, we do know that you are trustworthy. So God, we just ask that you would speak to us afresh this morning and you would, you would allow us to walk in your peace. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. As we journey under the sun, sometimes we wrestle with tough questions, don't we? We wrestle with what is God doing in my life? How do I make sense of the hand of God? As we come to the end of this chapter, that's where Solomon is at, as he's looking at the work of God. He's saying, I can't make sense of this in my earthly understanding under the sun. And if you're wrestling with some tough questions in your life, you're in good company because we find some of the greats in the Bible wrestling with the Lord. Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh and share the love of God, to share repentance. He didn't want to do that. And he goes the opposite direction in which God was calling him because God was asking him to go share the message with the enemies of Israel, those who had brutalized the nation of Israel. And he's wrestling with God and he's saying, God, why would you call me to go and share your love with them? God does forgive the city of Nineveh, doesn't destroy it, and Jonah's upset. He's mad at God because God has brought grace instead of judgment. And we find the end of the book of Jonah, he's really pouting. He's pouting before the Lord, and he's in that place of of wrestling. Habakkuk, the prophet, also is wrestling because God has shared with him that the enemies of Israel, the wicked nations, are going to come and judge God's people. And he couldn't understand why the wicked nations would be used to judge God's chosen people and he wrestles that whole book the book of Habakkuk is about him wrestling with God. Job in the trials that he went through had so many questions before the Lord and God ultimately says Job who are you? Where were you when I created the world? John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ saying this is the Messiah this is the appointed one but yet finds himself in prison. Didn't expect to be in prison as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. In the dark dungeon of despair, he sends a messenger to Jesus saying, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should I look for another? That's to the degree that John the Baptist is wrestling. And Jesus' response was, blessed are those who do not stumble because of me. Blessed are those that aren't tripped up by my ways. So Solomon is wrestling, These greats in the Bible are wrestling, we too are wrestling. I remember being younger in my faith and really disturbed with this concept of people being disappointed with God. I saw a book title that said, Disappointed with God, and I was like, how could you be disappointed with God? We're on the receiving end of his grace and his forgiveness and and his goodness, and so even though there's trials, how could we be disappointed uh, with the Lord? But as I journeyed in life, I found myself on a couple of occasions asking some really hard questions and getting to that place of disappointment. One was when my dad got diagnosed with cancer years ago. He was 51 years old at the time. We were expecting our first. His prostate cancer had already spread outside of his prostate and the doctors were saying that he had six months to live. He had a hard time finding a doctor that would even treat him. I was the youth pastor at the church was walking over to the bank and was talking with the Lord, wrestling with the Lord, God, why would you allow this? And I felt God speak to my heart and say, Eric, I love your dad more than you do. I'm gonna do what's what's best for him. And then at another point uh, in Amber and I's marriage, we went through two miscarriages. We had our two older daughters and then we had a couple of miscarriages, didn't get pregnant for a a time. And after the second uh, miscarriage, I found myself feeling that disappointment. Or, God, I trust you, but I'm disappointed. This isn't how I expected or wanted things to work out. After the second miscarriage, there was a men's retreat, and I was teaching at the men's retreat Friday night, and then coming back down from the mountain to teach here Saturday night and Sunday morning. A lot of teachings to get prepared. And in this moment, I couldn't get a teaching together. I couldn't sit down to be able to focus, to hear from God. And what was building inside of me is I hadn't had this tough conversation with God. Even though I was feeling these things, it was hard to go before the Lord and tell him how I really felt. So I got on my knees by our bed and just cried out to the Lord and said, God, I'm disappointed, this hurts, but I I do trust you. And I find for me, and it may be different for you, it's hard to have that conversation with God. It's hard for some reason to ask those tough questions of him. We'll share it with one another. We'll even share, I'm wrestling with God and I don't understand this. But to go before him and spend that time with him and wrestle with him. And I want to encourage you this morning to do that. I think it's going to be healthy in your relationship with God. You're going to go deeper in your relationship with him If you're willing to have that courage to have that hard-on conversation about the questions that we uh, experience so let's get into our text in verse 1 says who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed so Solomon's asking who's a wise person Saying you can identify a wise person by their countenance, by their face, because wisdom makes your face shine. Wisdom changes your face from sternness to one of pleasantness. Has our countenance changed since Christ has gotten a hold of our lives? Abraham Lincoln said that everyone over 40 is responsible for their own face. The background to that conversation is they were considering a man for their cabinet. And Abraham Lincoln said, I don't like his face. One of the advisors says, this poor man, you know, he can't help what his face looks like. And Abraham Lincoln wasn't talking about his facial features. But he was talking about the way that he portrayed his body language. His body language that's communicated through his face is not one of leadership. It's not one that I would want to be upon my my cabinet. Sometimes we walk around with such a sternness about us that we may not even feel angry, but that's what our body language is coming across, and nobody's gonna talk to us, right? Everybody's like, stay out of his way, stay out of her way. They're really mad, They're, they're really upset. And so Abraham Lincoln's saying, Take responsibility for your face. Take responsibility of of what we're communicating with our facial features. A smile goes a long way. (laughs) Looking somebody in the eye goes a long way. And what Solomon is teaching us is that wisdom is going to change us from that place of sternness to allow our faces to be able to shine. This really happens as we spend time in the presence of the Lord. It'll happen naturally, organically we see Moses beholding God's glory, and his face started to shine. He had to put a veil over his face because the mo' glow was starting to fade, but what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 3 is the veil's been torn. We're able to go to the throne room of God, behold the glory of God, and go from glory to glory. We're transformed our character, our countenance has changed as we spend time with the Lord. We probably don't even realize it, but I bet our families and friends can be like, oh, they met with the Lord. They had a a genuine encounter with the Lord. They spent time in His presence because their countenance is different. There isn't that sternness about Him. You know, this is something I want to continue to to grow in because, you know, one of the things that God's gift to the Cartiers is like the Unobrow, right? I can... I can furrow my brow, you know, and do one of these, and you can't even see my eyeballs, right? And I don't even realize that, that I'm doing it. And verse 2, I say, keep the commandment for the sake of your oath to the king. Keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to the king. And Solomon's sharing about wisdom. He's sharing about honoring authority. By honoring the authority that God has placed in our lives, we are honoring God. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God has placed that authority in our life, that king in our life. How we respond to authority says a lot about our character and our relationship with God. Is there a line to our obedience to authority? Yes, if our authority is asking us to contradict the scripture. But we need to make sure that we're not just being asked to contradict our own personality, our own opinions, that we're being asked to compromise something that God has told us to do. But if we're forced to face this obedience between God or men, we must obey God. In verse three, don't be hasty to go from his presence Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever he pleases. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? It's hard for us to relate to this king type of government, this this monarchy, but the king would have absolute power. And we do believe that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? It's not a good thing to be able to have absolute power. But in that environment, Solomon's saying, be careful to confront the king with some evil thing. When we look at Solomon's writings in Proverbs, he's always trying to discern whether someone is willing to receive correction. Before we give correction, evaluate if they're willing to receive it. And if they're not willing to receive it, you'd be better off wrestling a bear. And so that's kind of the same idea here. If this king's gonna do whatever he wants, he's not gonna respond uh, to correction. Be careful when you're bringing an evil thing before him when you're confronting him with evil. In verse five, he who keeps his commands will experience nothing harmful. Obeying authority keeps us out of harm's way. A wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment because every matter there is a time and a judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. So, in this idea of confronting evil, there is the judgment. There is that standing up against evil and righteousness, but there's also the time. And timing is really important when confronting evil and discerning when is the right time. When is that time when this needs to be brought up? In verse 7. For he doesn't know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? We don't know what's going to happen. If there's one thing that's certain, it's that we certainly don't know what's going to happen. You may have caught it in the news on uh, Thursday night. A tragic story, 20-year-old young man, 10 o'clock in the evening, pulls up to the drive through at the Jack in the Box, and he ends up dying, just ordering food. He pulled in at the wrong angle, and had to open his car door to get his food. Ever been there, right? It's kind of the worst. Like, oh man, I can't, can't reach it. I'm gonna have to open up my door. And as he opened up his door, his car malfunctioned, went into reverse, accelerated, and pinned him up against the tree and he passed away. How many questions go through the mind of his parents and his friends? What if he would have just had Honey Nut Cheerios at home instead of going to get Jack in the Box, right? What if he would have pulled in at the right angle and not had to open his door? And so you have these things running through your heart and and your mind. And when there is tragedy, it causes us to realize, I don't have a lot of control. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to occur. In verse 8, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. In this idea and this reminder that we don't have that much control is when it comes to death, we can't retain or dismiss our spirit. You might be in a place of suffering, and you're like, I want to go home to be with the Lord, but we don't have power over our own spirit to just be able to dismiss our, our spirit. Jesus, as he was being crucified, says to the Father, Father, I commend my, my spirit to you. Jesus has has that power. We don't have that, that power. How many people are in that place where they're dying and they don't want to die? They want to live. But when it's time, it's time. You can't stop that process. It's it's happening whether we like it or, or not. And it shows God's ultimate control in our lives. There's this statement about wickedness. If you're given over to wickedness, wickedness will not deliver you. Sometimes in our sinful state, we think that more wickedness is going to get us out of a jam. So here I'm in a tough spot because I've been lying. If I continue to lie, it's going to deliver me. Or here I am doing drugs and dealing drugs, and my friends are going to deliver me in this drug culture. No, they're, they're not gonna deliver you. So alcohol has brought bondage in my life and led to drunkenness and destruction. Well, just a little more alcohol is gonna see me through. A little more alcohol is gonna heal this wound inside of my heart, and it never does, right? Wickedness can't deliver us. Wickedness isn't gonna deliver us. Thankfully, Jesus can deliver us. Jesus is the one that can uh, set us free. In verse nine, and this I've seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. As he's observing authority, Solomon, he says there comes a point under the sun where someone in their leadership is leading in such a way that it's going to bring hurt to their own hurt and to their own uh, destruction. So first we wanna think about how do we respond to the authority over us, but we also wanna think how do we lead in the sphere of influence that God has given to us. You may say, I'm not a leader. If you step back and look at your life, God has given you buckets of of leadership and sometimes by the way that we lead, it's gonna bring destruction to them and destruction to us. Are we leading in a servant leadership type of fashion? Christ-style of leadership where we're laying our lives down for them? Or will we be being domineering and overpowering to the point where there is uh, destruction? The racehorse Seabiscuit from the 30s didn't start off well. This horse was lazy and also out of control. So the owner and trainers worked really hard to try to cause Seabiscuit to be an effective racehorse came from a really good line of horses and had this tremendous potential to be a a great horse and the approach was really heavy-handed with Seabiscuit and Seabiscuit was so stubborn that the horse began to enjoy the battle with the trainer so the fun was to disobey the trainer and that's where this point of passion was who knew horses could have attitude huh so eventually, Seabiscuit gets sold for $8,000, which seems like a lot of money at the time, and it was, but very little compared to how much money Biscuit made. I mean, here this animal made so much money, probably no way for the animal to realize how much money it made. New owner, new trainer, and this trainer was an older man with a lot of experience uh, with horses, and he took an approach with the horse that was open-handed, so we're not going to use the whip on the horse, and we're going to try to give the horse an appetite for running to where Seabiscuit will fall in love with speed. And over just the course of a couple of weeks, when Seabiscuit realized, I can't make the trainer mad, I can't get into a battle with the trainer, the horse became bored and started to begin to run and fell in love with speed. And you know the rest of the story. Maybe the greatest horse, racehorse in all of history. And I think that's a lot of idea with leadership. We don't want to have dominion over people's faith. We want to be helpers of their joy. We don't want to just try to inspire behavior modification. We want them to fall in love with Jesus. The way that Seabiscuit fell in love with speed, we want people to fall in love with Jesus, and then bam, things start to happen in their lives. And you may say, well, I lead in a secular environment. I lead in the business world. I'm a school teacher. You know, it's very difficult for me to be able to share Jesus. You're sharing Jesus in the way you live. You're sharing Jesus in the way you serve. And if you take a Jesus-style type of leadership, people are going to look at this and say, "This is different. I like this. I want to get to know who Jesus is." In verse ten, then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in vanity. Where they had so done, this is also vanity. And they were forgotten in the city where they had so done, this is also vanity. What frustrated Solomon is you have someone who is living in wickedness. They're going in and out of the place of holiness, which was probably the temple, but yet they died, they weren't held accountable, and their wickedness was forgotten. This drove Solomon nuts. And this tends to be the way things work. The world moves on very fast and very quickly. And the righteous deeds are forgotten. And the wickedness is forgotten. And there's a lot of wisdom in the nation of Israel to going to such a great extent to make sure that the Holocaust is not forgotten. You know, how quickly history is forgotten. How many young people have no idea what the Holocaust is? Right? Some people in their madness try to say the Holocaust never happened. Well, because of all of the work that's been done to document it, it can't be uh, forgotten. In verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. If justice doesn't happen swiftly, then the hearts of men are encouraged in evil. We thought this just happened in our culture. We just thought this happened Now in 2018, but it was happening in Solomon's day, and it was frustrating to Solomon as well. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it'll be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it'll not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he doesn't fear before God. So Solomon's saying fearing God is a benefit. It's better than being wicked, being in that place of awe of God. But we'll see the next few verses, Solomon is saying sometimes here on earth, the same thing happens to a wicked person and to a righteous person. Let's look at verse 14. There is a vanity which occurs on the earth. Another frustrating thing that occurs on the earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. So what do we do? We have to factor in eternity. Is it better to fear God and to walk with him? Absolutely. But as you fear God and walk with him, Will you experience some of the same things that a wicked person experiences? Absolutely. So if we don't factor in eternity, it could be really frustrating. Does a person who's extremely wicked get cancer? Yes. Does a person who's walked with the Lord get cancer? Yes. Does a person who's living hell on wheels get their house broken into? Yes. Someone who's walking with the Lord get their house broken into? Yes, right? But in eternity... It's a different story. You're never gonna regret serving the Lord, fearing God, walking with him. God tells us that there's gonna be eternal reward even for the smallest things that are done in his name. And for people that don't know Christ and reject Christ, they're gonna be held accountable before the Lord. But if we're looking at the value of wisdom and saying, does it pay off in this life to live in in a wise fashion? Yes, in your relationship with the Lord. Yes, and the things that really matter. But if you're simply putting it on a balance sheet, and you're saying, does godliness lead to more uh, financial gain? No, that's not the point. You know, God's not looking just to further your balance sheet. He's looking for something far, far greater. And that's the relationship with him. In verse 16, when I applied my heart, or excuse me, verse 15, so I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better on the sun to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. This is one of Solomon's big takeaways. We've seen it a few times in the book of Ecclesiastes. With wisdom and vanity, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, there's value, there's substance, there's meaning in being able to eat and drink and be merry. Enjoy the simplest things that God has provided. We don't have control. We don't know what's gonna happen. We don't have power over death. So let's stop and enjoy what God has provided, who he is, and the people that we get to spend time with. I hope that one of the things that happens through our study of the book of Ecclesiastes is that we eat a little bit better. And I'm not talking about what you eat, but the quality in which we receive it. That we slow down a little bit and say, God, thank you. Thank you for providing this food for me. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you for the opportunity that I get to share this meal with this family member, with this friend, with this acquaintance that I'm just getting to know. But is there more to life than just making sure we enjoy our food that we eat, drink, and be merry. Because wouldn't an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't believe in eternity, wouldn't one of the conclusions that they come to is to say, life's short, I don't know what's gonna happen when I die, so I have to make sure that I eat, drink, and be merry. I need to enjoy my Chipotle burrito, right? I need to try to have as much satisfaction under the sun. And as we look at Christ's teaching, Jesus said that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. He shows us the way to meaningful, abundant life. And he says, if anyone seeks to save their life, they're gonna lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you're gonna find it. If we take up our cross and follow Christ, we're gonna find it. So a surrendered life leads to an abundant life. And as we're surrendered to Christ and we're not living for ourselves, I think we're able to really enjoy the provision of God. But if we aren't living for Christ, if we don't know Christ, if we're not surrendered to him, you can have the best food in the world with the greatest companionship in the world and you're really not gonna enjoy it. You're not gonna be in a place of experience the meaningful life that God intended. In verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see The business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night. So he's looking at wisdom, wanting to understand wisdom, looking at work, looking at business that's done under the sun, and his observation is, no one sleeps. I guess the rat race is nothing new. The people have always been trying to get ahead and burn the candle at both ends. The nation of Israel departed from God in many ways, but one of the ways that it was practically expressed is they refused to rest. God called them to a Sabbath so that they would be unique. So the rest of culture would say, what's up with these guys? They don't work seven days a week. And it was a way of honoring God and declaring the knowledge of God to those that didn't uh, know the Lord. So the rat race has always been going culture at that time was work seven days a week. That's why taking a day off would would stand out and the nation of Israel says we don't have time to rest, right? We've got to work, 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 work and this is what Solomon observes. There's no rest. People aren't in sleeping. They're not enjoying. Verse 17 and this is where we see Solomon really asking the tough question. Then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. So he's observing now God's work, God's hand, what he's done. And he says, a man cannot find out the work that God's done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. So a wise man wants to know what God is doing, wants to make sense of the hand of God in his life, but there will be times where he won't be able to find it. Who knows the mind of God? I mean, if we were to try to be able to say, I know what God is doing in this particular situation, do we know what God knows? Do we understand what God is doing? Here from our perspective, this situation may be absent the hand of God, the working of God, but from his perspective, he's saying, hold on, Eric, trust me, I'm doing a great work. Who can be God's counselor? Sometimes we try, don't we? God, this would really be great if you did this in this particular uh, situation. Thankfully, God doesn't need a counselor and he doesn't take counsel from us, right? So as we ask these tough questions of God, like Solomon is wrestling through he says sometimes you're not going to come to an answer why would God allow us to sometimes not have an answer well the first reason is is because we wouldn't like his answer God says okay Eric you want an answer here's my answer Well, well I don't agree I don't like that answer so God's in his wisdom sometimes doesn't Give us an answer. A second reason is, if an infinite God could fit into my finite mind, he's not big enough to worship, right? I don't want God to be able to fit into this puny brain. I don't even understand how electricity works. I don't really fully even understand how my car works. I'm starting to learn more about cars but I just know when I turn the ignition that most of the time it works, right? I know very little, but yet I want to be an expert on the ways of God. I want to be an expert on what I think he's doing in my life. There needs to remain about God a sense of mystery and awe where we're saying, God, you are infinite. You are eternal. You are the creator. And so I can't expect to have you fit into my brain and to to my mind. But I think the greatest reason that sometimes God doesn't give us answers is so that we learn to trust him, and we go deeper into relationship with him. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. It'd be great if God would say, trust me with 80% of your heart. (laughs) But God wants all. He wants all of our trust, And then to not rely upon our own understanding, that's very difficult for us, especially in our Western culture. We're thinkers, we strategize, we scrutinize. God says, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me. Surrender your ways to me. Then I will make your path straight. There's been several times in my life where I've hindered the work of God in a situation in my life because I haven't surrendered it to him. I'm relying on my own understanding. And the moment that I put it into God's hands and say, okay, here, you can have this, then God begins to work. I'm going, Eric, you're such a knucklehead. Why couldn't have you come to that place six months prior, right? And then sometimes my loving wife is like, Eric, you're such a knucklehead. Why couldn't have you come to that place earlier, right? Sometimes we cause our families to suffer because we're not putting things in, in God's hands. So what do we have? If we don't always have answers, what do we have? We have the proven character of God. How do we know that God's character is proven? He tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad that he doesn't change? Aren't you glad that he doesn't have a bad day? The place where God's character is proven the most to me is on the cross. God shows us that he is love by sending his son to die on the cross for my sin. How do we know that God is good? Not always by evaluating our circumstance because we can't make sense of our circumstances. But we can look at the cross and go, I know, God, that you're good because you gave your son to die for me on the cross. And then with him, you're going to freely give me all good things. So his proven character is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. But we also have his precious promises. God's promises are true. And if you're in the midst of wrestling through a tough question, I would encourage you to go to God's presence, look at his proven character, and hold on to his promises. Find them. Find them in Scripture. Say, okay, this promise is for me in this particular situation and I'm gonna believe it and I'm gonna hold on to it by faith. If you would turn with me in your Bible to Habakkuk chapter two, we're gonna look at Habakkuk's wrestling for just a moment. Habakkuk is at the end of the Old Testament, so if you find the Gospel of Matthew and go a little bit to your left, hopefully you'll find it. If the person next to you has found it, take their Bible, give them yours. (laughs) If you have a Bible app on your phone, this might be a, a good time to use it. Habakkuk 2, verse 1. In the first few verses of this book, Habakkuk, we see the questions from the prophet. He's asking the Lord the tough and hard questions. But then he decides to do something very wise and very practical in verse one of chapter two. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. He makes time to hear from God. He makes time to wrestle with God. He says, I'm gonna to go to this tower, to this rampart, and I'm gonna stay here until God speaks to me. Not everybody who has tough questions comes out on the other side closer to the Lord. In fact, some do stumble. Sometimes we do fall away in the midst of wrestling with these tough questions. One of the things that's gonna help us through these dark valleys is take time to meet with the Lord. This is a crazy way to use a vacation day, but maybe take a vacation day and drive up into the mountains. What a beautiful tower to be able to meet with god in right maybe go to your family to your spouse and say i need this afternoon i need some time to be able to to hear from god make the space make the time get alone with god but habakkuk doesn't approach this with the attitude of i'm right my perspective's right and god your perspective's wrong he's open to the fact that he may need to be corrected he has humility As he approaches the Lord. Then look at the end of verse 4 of Habakkuk 2. It says, But the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by faith. This is used three times in the New Testament in the book of Romans, Galatians, and the book of Hebrews. It's the message of salvation that we live by faith, that we're saved by faith. As we trust in what Christ has done, we become spiritually alive. It's true for salvation, but it's also true for the situations that we go through. God's answer to Habakkuk was faith. Trust me, the just shall live by faith. Sometimes that's the hardest answer from God, isn't it? Trust me, live by faith, trust my proven character, trust my promises. Now look at the end of the book, look at Habakkuk's response. we have this hymn of faith, the song of faith. He gets it from God. He goes from wrestling to worship. It says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no curd in the stalls. This is poetic, But Habakkuk is not attempting to be poetic. This stinks. This is an absolute economic collapse. What he describes here is every form of income for the nation of Israel. Saying there's no fruit on the vines. There's no figs on the trees. There's no herds in the stalls. We've been completely wiped out. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Play out the difficult situation that you're in and say, God, if everything hits the fan, if all the money goes away, if the health goes away, if death comes to our home, if this relationship doesn't get restored, yet I will trust in you. Yet I will rejoice in you. I am choosing to rejoice in you and specifically in salvation. Circumstances cannot touch your salvation, amen? If you know Christ, you're in Christ, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, and every day we can say, there may be a lot of bad news in my life, but I'm gonna be thankful that I'm saved. I'm gonna be thankful that my name's written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus said, in this life you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome this world. Salvation. Don't allow your hearts to be troubled because the midterm elections are coming up. Because I go to prepare a place for you. Heaven, salvation. So the character of God and the free gift of salvation that he has given to us. Verse 19, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills, this declaration of faith of God, you're gonna strengthen me. You are my strength and you're gonna make my feet like deer's feet. Deer have crazy strong feet. Their stability to navigate a mountain, to jump over a fence. What happens in trial? What happens in tough questions? is that our feet get weary and we have a very difficult time walking and it's easy for us to stumble. So Habakkuk's saying, God, you're gonna strengthen my feet. You're gonna make my feet rock and you're gonna allow me to press forward and I'm gonna to get to the top of the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, I'm gonna gain a different perspective. Many times in this life, we do get through a trial and we do see a different perspective, don't we? But sometimes we don't and we will ultimately end up in heaven and that's when we will see clearly the perspective that God has for us. So here's the application for us this morning. Is go wrestle. Go wrestle. If you're in a place where you've got tough questions in your life with God, is don't settle for this to just be another message. If there's things in your life where you've asked For years, God, why? But you've never had the courage to go to him? Go to him, right? He knows. He knows we're questioning. He knows we're wrestling. I hope this message haunts you. I hope you can't get some sleep until you wrestle with the Lord. But then as we wrestle with the Lord in honesty, transparency, and respect, we're gonna meet with him. He's gonna provide some answers or some lack of answers, right? And hopefully, as then we meet with the Lord, we go from a place of wrestling to a place of peace, a peace that surpasses understanding, that doesn't come from, okay, I understand all of this, but God, I trust you. So let's pray, and happy wrestling this week, okay? Father, we thank you that you are with us, And there are so many twists and turns in life that sometimes we do wrestle with very hard questions. And I know that there's some that this is very current from trial that's happening in their life. And Father, I pray that you would meet them and that you would give them peace. Lord, for others, there's questions in their life that go years back and they've been wrestling and haven't come to a a place of peace. And I pray that you would meet them in those things as well. We do thank you for eternity, and we thank you for heaven, and we thank you for your love for us. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.